Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 4 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter 4. The Worst Happens. I was late getting down to the office the next morning, for I had gone back to Jim's and talked until all hours. It seemed that my instructions to Wicks, to tell Annie to stay with Helen, had been taken quite literally by the estimable pair, for when Helen had told the girl to leave she had refused, saying that Mr. Felderson had ordered her to stay. That was what precipitated the quarrel. Even when I left Jim to go to bed, I had heard him walking back and forth in his room, and once during the night I heard him shut his door. Thinking perhaps he might want to talk to me, I went to the door and knocked. Jim was untying his shoes and explained that, unable to sleep, he had gone out for a walk. The clock on the mantelpiece showed half-past four. In spite of the fact that he had practically no sleep the night before, he was down at his usual hour, nine o'clock, and when I went into his office to see him, there was no sign of fatigue on his face. "'Any news?' I inquired. "'This may interest you,' and he tossed over the morning paper, folded to an article on the first page. "'Zalnik freed. Governor Fallon pardons man implicated in Yellow Pier explosion. Prisoner upon release makes terrific indictment against those responsible for his imprisonment.' I glanced hurriedly down the long article. One paragraph in particular caught my eye. It was part of a quotation from Zalnik's speech to the reporters. Those who were responsible for my imprisonment may well regret the fact that justice has at last been given me. I shall not rest until I lay before the working classes the extent to which the processes of law can be distorted in this state and rouse them to overthrow and drive out those who have the power of depriving them of their rights and their liberty. I shall not rest until I see a full meed of punishment brought to those who have punished me and hundreds like me. Their money and their high position will not help them to escape a just retribution. It looks as though our friend was going to have a very restless time, I commented, after reading the passage aloud to Jim. Vengeance is mine, saith Zalnik, Jim's eyes twinkled. You're not afraid of him, are you, Jim? I asked. No more now than ever, Bupps. His face suddenly clouded over. Wouldn't it clear the air, though, if they did carry out their funny little threats and put me out of the way? When I think of some of the things Helen has said to me during the last month, I almost wish they would. That sounds weak and silly, I scoffed. Not a bit like you, Jem. Cheer up. Give Helen a divorce and let her go. She's not worth all this heartache. Jim sat for a moment, thinking. You don't know what this has done to me, Bupps. 
It's not as though divorcing Helen would have straightened the whole matter out. Ever since I've known Helen, I've idolized her, foolishly, perhaps. She has been the one big thing worth working for, the thing I've built my whole life around. I've got to fight for her, Bupps. I can't let her smash my ideals all to pieces. I've got to make her live up to what I always believed her to be. The tone of the man, the dead seriousness of his words, made me want to disown Helen and then kill Woods. I left the room with my eyes a bit misty and did my best, in the case I was working on, to forget. For two days I was kept so busy I hardly saw Jim, except when I had to go into his office for papers, or to consult an authority. I was trying to win a case against the L.L.N.G. Railroad, and though I knew my client could never pay me a decent fee, even if I should win, I was pitted against some of the best lawyers in the state, and was anxious for the prestige that a verdict in my favor would give me. The case was going my way, or it seemed to be, but the opposition was fighting harder every day, so that I had time for little else than sleep, work, and food. Frank Woods had apparently left town, either on business or to give Helen a clear field to influence Jim. Helen was still at Mary's, and her presence on a visit there was so natural that it hid her separation from Jim better than if she had gone home to Mother. I was just leaving for court one morning when Jim called me into his office. There was a gleam of triumph in his eyes, and his whole attitude was one of cheerful excitement. "'Have you a minute, Bupps?' "'Only a minute, Jim. This is the day of days for me.' There were several letters and telegrams lying on the table. Jim pointed exultantly to them and cried, "'I've got him, Bupps. There is enough evidence there to send Woods up for twenty years.' I wouldn't have used such underhanded methods against anything but a snake, but I had to win. I had to win. I rushed to the table and rapidly scanned one of the telegrams. You started at the wrong end, but it doesn't matter. Frank Woods has used the money entrusted him by the French government to gamble with. He counted on the contracts with the international biplane people to bring him clean, and leave him a comfortable fortune besides. The end of the war and the wholesale cancellation of government contracts killed that. To cover his deficits, he borrowed from the capital loan and trust, and they are hunting for their money now. "'How did you find all this out, Jim?' I demanded breathlessly. "'From friends, good friends, Bupps, men who knew that if I asked for this unusual information I had need of it, and that I wouldn't abuse their confidence. And now that you've got it, what are you going to do with it? I have sent messages to Woods, to his apartment, to the club, and to the international plant, saying that I want to see him. I know he is working like the devil to get the contracts to furnish the government with mail planes for next year. If he gets that contract, he may possibly pull through, for the bank would probably extend his credit but if knowledge of his illegal use of the money entrusted to him by the French government ever gets out, he knows it's the stripes without the stars for him. "'Be careful when you meet with him, Jim,' I warned. "'He'll go to the limit, you know, to save himself.' 
He's all front bups, just like Zalnik. I'll give him three days to straighten out his affairs and get away. If he hasn't left by then, I'll put all the evidence I have into the hands of the Capital Loan and Trust. Are you going to tell Helen about this? I asked. Jim pondered a moment. I haven't decided that yet. If I was sure Woods would go away without any trouble, I think I'd leave her in ignorance. But he might use her to save himself. How do you mean? I'm not so blind that I can't see that Helen's infatuated with the man. If he is blackguard enough to ask her again to go with him, I think she would go, and that would pretty much effectively tie my hands. You mean that for Helen's sake you wouldn't prosecute Woods, I demanded? That's stupid sentimentality. It's for Helen's sake that I'm doing all this, Jim insisted. Don't think for a moment I would stop the prosecution just because she was with him. The reason my hands would be tied is because Helen's money would pay his obligations. Helen's money? I laughed. Helen hasn't as much as I have. Jim flushed. Helen is quite a wealthy woman, Bupps. When I went into the army I wanted to leave Helen perfectly easy in a financial way while I was gone. So I transferred all my railroad stock to her so that she might draw the interest. I haven't asked her for it since I came home, because in the light of our recent differences I was afraid she might think I didn't trust her. And do you suppose Woods knows that? Of course he knows it, Jim burst out. She must have told him. Why do you suppose he played around so long before he decided to make love to Helen? Oh, it's all so simple and clear to me now that I wonder at my stupidity. I glanced at my watch. Good Lord, Jim, you've almost made me lose my case. I have only three minutes to get to the courthouse. Hold up the climax till I get back, if you can. I jumped for the elevator and rushed to my appointment, getting there just in time. The news of the morning had so raised my spirits that I was filled with an immense enthusiasm. Everything went my way. My summing up was a masterpiece of logic, if I do say so myself, and my client received a substantial judgment. There is no moment sweeter in a young lawyer's life than when another lawyer, of big reputation, congratulates him on his conduct of a case. My cup was filled to overflowing, and I must confess, I had little thought for Jim's affairs when I lunched that day with Stevenson and McGuire, counsels for the LL&G. The prognostications that they made for my future were so exaggerated that a bigger man than I might well have been excused for increased head and chest measurements. At half-past two I went back to the office to announce the good news to Jim. I had made up my mind before luncheon to spend the afternoon on the links in honor of my victory. But the clouds, which had been heavy during the morning, by two o'clock opened up a steady drizzle. Jim was at his desk when I came in, bringing the glad tidings. He got up and gripped my hand. "'Good boy, Bupps. I knew you'd do it. Thank the Lord your affairs are going well, anyway.' "'Has something happened since I've been out?' I asked." Yes. The first national telephoned about eleven o'clock, 
saying that Helen wanted to borrow quite a large sum of money on her railroad stock, and asking if I knew about it. They thought the money was probably for me, and they wanted to ask if I'd be willing to wait a few days. How much was it? Fifty thousand dollars. Is the stock worth that much, Jim? Yes, said Jim seriously. The stock is worth twice that. That's why I have to go slow. She could sell that stock for fifty thousand at any broker's in five minutes. I whistled. Gee, fifty thousand! Woods must have asked her for it because he knew you were after him. It's open warfare now. I told the bank I knew what the money was for, and that it would cause no inconvenience for me to have them hold up the loan for a few days. In fact, I asked Sherwood, the cashier, to wait until he saw me before making the loan. Just then the telephone rang. Jim answered it. Hello? Yes. Woods? Where are you now? He listened a moment. I understand. 8.30 promptly? I'll be there, yes. I understand. I'll be there. He hung up the receiver and looked at me with twinkling eyes. The shoe is beginning to pinch, Bupps. That was Woods. He asked me to meet him alone this evening at the country club at 8.30 promptly. He says that he wants to see me urgently on business that concerns us both. Did he ask you to come alone? Yes. He distinctly said that I was to come alone and be prompt. Jim, I argued, you can't go out there alone to meet that man. It's too infernally dangerous. There's no danger, Bupps, and I'm not going alone. Helen is going with me. He opened the bottom drawer of his desk and pulled out a leather portfolio, into which he put all of the letters and telegrams that were scattered about his desk. I'm going to prove to Helen in his presence what kind of a man he is, that he loves her only for the money I can give her, and to save his yellow hide. I'm going to tear out of her heart all the affection she ever had for him. I think after that she will not only come back to me, but she will love me all the more for having known Frank Woods. No matter how badly a leg or an arm may be shattered, a quick clean operation may cause the parts to grow together again, stronger than they were before. I think I win, Bupps. Still, I believe you ought to carry a gun in case he gets nasty. I will, if you like, he responded but I won't use it, no matter what happens. I left the office, vaguely disquieted with the thought of Jim going out to the club, to face a man as dangerous and desperate as Frank Woods. When a fellow of his standing sees the penitentiary looming up his foreground, he's capable of anything. Helen herself, in the crazed condition I had seen her the other night, was an added element of danger. I didn't like the looks of the situation. Anyway, I turned it. I climbed into my car and drove slowly through the wet, slippery streets. The windshield was so covered with raindrops that I lowered it to see the better, and the autumn rain beating into my face soon swept away my gloomy forebodings. After all, no man was going to stick his neck into the hangman's noose, no matter how eager he was for revenge. This was the twentieth century, in which no man could deliberately flout the law. 
Frank Woods would never invite Jim to a rendezvous so public as the country club, if he was planning mischief. When he found out how much Jim knew, realizing the game was up, he would leave town quietly. Helen certainly would shake Woods when she learned of his dishonesty and trickery. Surely no woman with Helen's pride could learn how she had been duped without hating the man who duped her. I stopped at the University Union and found the card room well filled with bridge players. The rainy afternoon had driven the golfers to cards, and, as one of the men, Terry O'Connell, was on the point of leaving, I took his place. I played till seven and then started home to dinner. The rain had stopped, and a fresh chilly wind was rippling the pools in the streets and rapidly drying the sidewalks. The prospect of a cold, blustery evening made me look forward with pleasure to the warm comfort of my study and a good book. I had just finished a solitary dinner, mother being confined to her room, and had settled down in dressing-gown and slippers before my cheerful fire when the telephone rang. I put down my book and tried to think of some excuse for staying home, in case it was my bridge-playing friends of the afternoon wanting me to come back to the club. A strange voice called from the other end of the wire. "'Mr. Thompson?' "'Yes.' "'There has been an accident to your brother-in-law's car.' "'What? Where? Who is this talking?' I shouted breathlessly. "'This is Captain Wadsworth of the North District Police Station speaking.' Your brother-in-law has had a very bad accident with his car at the second bridge on the Blandsville Road. Both Mr. and Mrs. Felderson were pretty badly injured. Where are they now? I gasped, fear clutching at my throat. They've been taken to St. Mary's Hospital. I slammed down the receiver and tore into my clothes. I ran out to the car and drove through the dark, wet streets regardless of speed laws. From out of the gray gloom the heavy bulk and lighted windows of St. Mary's loomed just ahead. I ran up the steps and went at once to the office. Three nurses were standing there talking. Can you tell me where they have taken Mr. and Mrs. Felderson? Were they the people in the automobile accident? I nodded my head. One of the nurses led me to a large room on the second floor. As we neared the door, a young intern, so the nurse told me, came out. He was thoughtfully polishing his glasses. "'I am Warren Thompson, Mr. Felderson's brother-in-law,' I explained. "'Can you tell me how bad Mr. and Mrs. Felderson were hurt?' He put his glasses back on his nose and looked at me sympathetically. "'Mr. Felderson is dead, and Mrs. Felderson is dying,' he said. End of chapter 4「Chapter Five of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Five Accident or Murder. Have you ever had the whole world stop for you? Well, that's what happened when that young intern told me that Jim was dead. I must have been half mad for a few moments. At least they said I acted that way. Sometimes tragic news deadens the senses, like the brief numbness that follows the sudden cutting off of a limb, the pain not manifesting itself until some time afterward. But with me, 
the fact of Jim's death, clawed and tore at the very foundation of my brain. It stamped itself into my sensibilities with such a crushing force that I writhed under the burden of its bitter actuality. I felt as though I, myself, had died, and my spirit, snatched from the brilliant, airy sunlight of life, had been plunged into the hammering emptiness of hell. Jim is dead. Big, happy, kind-hearted Jim is dead, ached through my brain. They gave me something to drink, ammonia, I think, and my whirling head began to clear. "'Can I see Mrs. Felderson?' I asked the intern. It was he who had given me the ammonia. "'I'm afraid not,' he replied. "'She is being prepared for the operating table.' "'There is a chance, then, of her being saved?' I clutched at his arm. He slowly shook his head. "'One chance in a thousand only, I'm afraid.' There was a severe concussion of the brain and a slight displacement of one of her cranial vertebrae. Luckily, Dr. Forbes is here, and if anyone can save her, he can. He got up from the seat beside me. Now, Mr. Thompson, I advise you to go home and get a good night's rest. You can do nothing here, and the next few days are bound to be a great strain. You will telephone me at once the result of the operation, I asked quickly. I wouldn't count too much on the operation, he said kindly, but yes, I will let you know. He turned and walked back toward Helen's room. Just then the door was opened, and there appeared a sort of elongated baby cab without a top. On this wheeling table was a still white bundle, from which a stifled moan escaped now and then. Shaken with terror and nausea, I ran for the stairs, and did not stop until I got into my car and was racing away. As I drove, my brain cleared, and I remembered that there were others to whom the tragedy was almost as vital as to myself, and who ought to be informed. I stopped at a corner drug store and called up Mary. Mother should not be told until a physician could assure me that she was strong enough to stand the shock. Mary was wonderfully sympathetic and tender, not voluble the way some women would have been. She asked me if I had been to the scene of the accident, and when I told her I was just going, she asked me if I wanted her with me. As it was after ten o'clock and the rain had begun again, I told her no, and added that I'd come to see her in the morning. When I left the telephone booth, the drug clerk stared at me inquisitively. "'You look all fagged out,' he said frankly. "'I'm not feeling very well,' I replied, struggling into my raincoat. "'Better let me give you something to fix you up,' he suggested. I acquiesced, and he went to the shelf and shook some white powder into a glass. Then he put some water in it, and it fizzed merrily. I drank it at a gulp and climbed into the car, starting for the second bridge on the Blansville Road. The drink braced me up, and as I drove I began to recall the events of the last few days, and for the first time to wonder if they had any connection with the tragedy. Captain Wadsworth had told me it was an accident. Could Frank Woods have been in any way responsible? No, certainly not, for Helen had been in the car, and he surely would never have done anything to put her life in jeopardy. But Woods didn't know that she was there. He had told Jim to come out alone, had insisted on it, in fact. It was Jim's idea to bring Helen with him. 
My heart was doing a hundred revolutions to the minute. Now that I had hit on this idea, every fiber of my being cried out that Frank Woods was in some way responsible. I tried to urge my car to more speed. The wreck would surely tell me something. I determined to hunt every inch of ground around that place for a clue. Woods would have to prove to me that he had nothing to do with the accident before I believed him innocent. I drove up the long hill overlooking the little bridge that had suddenly assumed such a tragic significance in my life. It lies at the bottom of a hill about halfway between the city and the country club, and on the loneliest stretch of the entire road. There are no houses about, the city not having grown that far out, and the soil being entirely unusable for farming. In fact, there are only one or two large trees nearby, to break the desolate expanse, the vegetation consisting mostly of thorny bushes springing from the rocky soil. There have been several accidents at that bridge, for its narrowness is deceiving, and it is impossible for two autos to pass. Motorists going to the club usually let their cars out on the long hill, and if another car coming around the bend from the opposite direction reaches the bridge at the same time, only skillful driving and good brakes can avoid a smash-up. The matter has been brought to the attention of the authorities several times, but nothing has ever been done, either to widen that bridge or to warn automobiles of the danger. As I reached the top of the hill, I saw that two automobiles had stopped at the bottom, and, noticing that their lights blinked as people passed back and forth in front of them, I was convinced that a small crowd had gathered, probably out of curiosity. I slowed up as I neared the spot and came to a stop at the side of the road. A motorcycle cop walked up to my car. "'Inspector Robinson, sir?' "'No,' I answered. "'I am Warren Thompson, brother-in-law of Mr. Felderson, who had the accident?' "'How did it happen, do you know, Sergeant?' "'It was the fault of the bridge again, sir. "'I told the chief that something ought to be done. "'This is the third accident in six months. "'We've been trying to find the other car.' "'What other car?' I asked. "'The car that made Mr. Felderson take the ditch,' he explained. "'He must have been driving fast. "'He usually did. "'Many's the time I've had to warn him.' and must have seen the other car would meet him at the bridge. He stopped too quick, skidded off the road, and turned over in the creek. I shuddered as I pictured the scene. One of the automobiles turned around, and the lights picked out the upturned wheels of Jim's car. It looked like some monster whose back had been broken. It was a large Peckworth Pierce touring car, and the force of the crash had twisted and smashed the huge chassis. Several men were gathered around the car, examining it with the aid of a barn-lantern. "'Where were the bodies found?' I asked, my voice trembling. "'Mrs. Felderson was over there on the bank. She was thrown out, likely, when the car left the road. Mr. Felderson's body was under the machine.' While the thought of the heavy weight crushing the life out of Jim sickened me, I thanked God that the death must have been instantaneous. He pointed to a man standing by the wreck. That man over there? He found them and took them to the hospital after sending one of his friends to notify the police. 
The man evidently heard our voices and came over to us. "'Is this the inspector?' he asked. "'No,' I replied. "'I am Mr. Felderson's brother-in-law.' "'Oh, I'm sorry,' he said quickly. "'May I express my deep, deep sympathy?' "'Thank you. Will you tell me how you discovered the accident?' I had been out to Blandsville on business and was returning with a party of friends. As we neared the bridge, one of them caught sight of the upturned automobile in the creek and we stopped. We found Mrs. Felderson first being attracted by her moans. We went at once to the car, and as there were four of us we were able to lift the automobile sufficiently to get Mr. Felderson from under it. We knew that the woman was still living, but none of us was a doctor enough to tell whether Mr. Felderson was alive or not. We carried them quickly to our car and hurried to St. Mary's, dropping one of my friends at the North District Station to inform the police what had occurred. Afterward we drove back here, thinking we might be wanted in case there was an investigation. "'Did you see the lights of any car ahead of you as you came along the road?' I asked. "'Did any car pass you, going in the same direction?' A car turned in ahead of us from the Millerstown Road about ten minutes before. Do you think that might be the car that was partly responsible for this accident? I queried. Of course, no one could be sure in a situation of that kind, but I wouldn't doubt it at all. It left us behind as if we were tied. Another car had driven up while we were talking, and our policeman had gone over to it at once. He came back now, accompanied by a short, heavy-set man in plain clothes. "'I am Inspector Robinson, detailed to examine into this affair. "'Were you the man who discovered the accident?' he asked, addressing my companion. "'Yes, Inspector. Pickering is my name. I'm with the Benefit Insurance Company.' He told of the circumstances of the discovery to the plain-clothes man, who, all the time Pickering was talking, bustled up and down and around the car. Finally he made Pickering show him just where the bodies lay. "'Distressing, distressing,' the inspector chirped. "'Dreadful accident, dreadful indeed, but quite to be expected with fast driving. If they will risk their lives—' "'Inspector,' I broke in, "'I am the brother-in-law of the man who drove that car. While he was a fast driver he was not a careless one.' I've never known him to have an accident before. The little man irritated me. That's the way it always happens, came back at me. They take risks a dozen times and get away with them, and then, bluey. But aren't you going to find the other car? I demanded. What other car? he snapped. The one that must have been coming from the opposite direction, that caused this accident. "'Do you know there was any such car?' he bristled. "'There must have been,' I answered. "'No accident has ever happened here except under such circumstances. "'Besides, Mr. Pickering saw a car turn into this road ahead of him "'not ten minutes before the accident.' "'Robinson looked from me to Pickering as though we were both conspiring to defeat justice. "'Did you see such a car?' he barked at Pickering. A car turned out of the Millerstown Road and went toward the city about ten minutes before we discovered the bodies, Pickering replied evenly. Why didn't you say so? the detective asked sharply. What kind of a car was it? A black limousine with wire wheels, 
I couldn't see the number. Robinson's humor seemed to have come back. Now we're getting on, he said, rubbing his hands. That's better. That's much better. If you gentlemen had just told me that in the first place, we'd have saved all this time. He turned to the motorcycle policeman. Feeney, go over to Millerstown and inquire if a black limousine with wire wheels stopped there tonight between eight and nine o'clock. A figure, unnoticed in the darkness, approached. It proved to be a lanky farmer, who spoke with a decided drawl. I reckon I can help you thar. There was a big limousine turin car, wire wheels, went through Millerstown, about half past eight, quarter to nine. I know, cause it durn near run me down. Do you live in Millerstown? the inspector questioned. Yep, came over to see the accident. Did that auto stop in Millerstown? The farmer chuckled and expectorated. It didn't even hesitate. Can you tell me anything else about it? I spoke up. The inspector glared at me. I'll conduct this investigation, Mr. Er. The farmer scratched his head. Well, nothing much. It went too blame fast for me to get more in a good look. But I did see that it was full of men, and the tail light were busted, and there wasn't no license on it. "'You sure of that?' the inspector asked. "'Yep,' he said. "'I'm sure, cause I was going to report em. Again the inspector turned to Feeney, who had been listening intently. "'Feeney, go in and tell the chief to issue instructions to all the force, to keep an eye out for a black limousine with wire wheels, and a broken tail-light, and no license tag.' "'My friend,' he said, turning to the farmer, "'I thank you for your information.' By tomorrow night we'll have that car and the parties concerned. By gad! They had their nerve running away after the accident. The damn rascals killing people and then running away. I'll grill their toes for them. The malice of the little detective, his readiness to jump from one conclusion to another, reminded me for all the world of some disagreeable little barking dog that chases every passing vehicle. I bade him good-night, shook hands with Pickering, and was on my way back to my car, when another automobile drove up. Three men jumped out, and as they passed in front of the lamps, I recognized Lawrence Brown and Fred Paisley from the club. The third man was Frank Woods. As I caught sight of his well-set-up figure, all the hatred I had for him seemed to rise in my throat and choke me try as I would, I couldn't separate him from the tragedy. When the farmer said the black limousine was full of men, I realized that Frank Woods couldn't have been one of them, and yet so great was my distrust of the man that I felt like accusing him on the spot. Larry Brown caught sight of me and wrung his hands. Damn it, old man, I can't tell you how sorry I am. Paisley patted me on the back. If there's anything we can do, Thompson. I shook my head, and tears came to my eyes. They made me realize poignantly how much I had lost. Woods didn't join us. He knew if he tried to sympathize with me after the affair of the other day, I would throttle him for his hypocrisy. Was Jim killed outright? Brown asked. Yes, and there's one chance in a thousand for Helen. Both men started. Was Mrs. Felderson there? 
They telephoned us at the club that Jim had been killed, but we didn't know she was with him. They glanced at each other and then at Woods, who was standing by the side of the overturned car. "'You'd better tell him, Larry,' Paisley muttered. "'Doesn't he know?' I asked. "'Of course not,' replied Brown. "'He was out there at the club with us. I'm afraid it will hit him awfully hard.' He stepped over to Woods, and taking him by the arm, they disappeared into the darkness. We heard a choking cry and the next moment Woods came running toward us. His face was distorted with horror, and his eyes were almost starting from his head. "'Thompson, for God's sake, tell me he lies! Tell me he lies!' he shrieked. "'Helen wasn't in that car!' The old suspicions came tumbling back, and a hundredfold. I turned cold all over. "'It is true,' I said. Mrs. Felderson is in the hospital at the point of death. With a stifled groan, Woods sank to the ground and buried his face in his shaking hands. End of chapter 5「Chapter 6 of 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 32 Caliber by Donald McGibney, Chapter 6, A Clue and a Verdict. I drove home with my thoughts in tumult. The look on Wood's face and the vehemence of his words made me sure he was in some way responsible for Jim's death. I walked the floors for hours trying to build up my case against him. He had sworn to kill Jim unless he let Helen go, and he must have known that afternoon that not only was Jim going to keep Helen from him, but that he had the proof with which to ruin him forever. He had planned to have it out with Jim at the country club, knowing it would be a cold, damp night and that few people would be out there. He had emphatically stated that Jim should come alone and should be there promptly at half-past eight. All those facts pointed to a man's guilt, and I felt sure that in some way I should be able to unearth the proof. I knew I ought to sleep, but sleep was the last thing I could do. Twice I called up the hospital to inquire after Helen, but they could tell me nothing. Had the operation been successful? Yes, she had come through it. Would she get well? Ah, that they could not say. They would let me know if there was any change. I sent a telegram to Jim's uncle in the West, the only relative Jim ever corresponded with and told him to notify any others to whom the news would be of vital interest. Toward five o'clock, when dawn was just graying the windows, I threw myself on the bed. I suddenly realized I was extremely tired, yet my brain was buzzing like a dynamo. Pictures and scenes from the last few days flashed through my mind. The vindictive look in Helen's eyes after the fight with Woods that table being wheeled out of Helen's room at the hospital, with the moaning white bundle on it. The upturned car pricked out of the darkness by the automobile lamps. And finally, Frank Wood's face when he heard that Helen had been in the car. With the realization that I ought to get up and close the window, where the morning breeze was idly flapping the curtain, I fell asleep. I woke with a start, 
to find the room flooded with golden sunlight. A glance at the clock on the mantel-shelf showed me that it was after nine. My body was cramped and stiff, and I felt stale and musty from having slept in my clothes. It was only after a cold shower and a complete change that I felt refreshed enough to pick up the threads where I had dropped them the night before. Again, like the sudden aching of a tooth, came the heartbreaking realization that Jim was dead. With it came also anxiety for Helen's condition, so I called up the hospital at once. They could only say that she had not recovered consciousness, but she seemed to be resting comfortably. I went down to the office to tell the stenographers they might have a vacation, until after the funeral, and to lock up. The first person I found there was Inspector Robinson, who was calmly reading over the correspondence on Jim's desk. With all the sang-froid in the world, he met my infuriated gaze. "'Good morning, Mr. Thompson. Thought there might be something here, touching on the case.' He waved a hand towards Jim's letter-basket. "'Have you found the black limousine?' I asked. "'Certainly, my dear man, certainly. We not only found the car, but we found the people who were in the car, and they know nothing about the accident.' My first explanation was the right one, and I knew it would be. Felderson was driving recklessly, saw the bridge, put on the brakes, skidded, and was killed.' "'But why should he put on the brakes at the bridge?' I queried. "'I've thought of that,' he smiled. "'Perfectly logical. "'There's a nasty bump at the bridge, "'and he naturally didn't want to jar Mrs. Felderson.' "'So he turned into the ditch "'and pitched her out on her head instead,' I jeered. "'That's all poppycock. "'I've taken that bridge at full speed a hundred times without a jar.' "'It's immaterial anyway,' he snapped, frowning at me. You can't make any fool mystery out of it. The point is that Mr. Felderson put on his brakes rapidly, perhaps for a dog or a rabbit, and skidded into the ditch. It's not immaterial, I burst out angrily. There was a real reason for his putting on the brakes rapidly. He was afraid of hitting something, or of being hit himself. Who was the driver of that other car? The son of one of the biggest men in the state, Karl Schreiber. "'Karl Schreiber!' I cried. "'The son of the German socialist, who was put in jail for dodging the draft?' I grabbed him by the arm. "'Quick, man! Who were the others with him?' Robinson gazed at me with a stupid frown. Two reporters from the Sun, a fellow by the name of Pedersen, Otto Metzger, and that Russian Zalnik who just got out of prison. "'Zalnik!' I yelled exultantly. Zalnik, the man Jim had sent to prison, and who had threatened revenge. Metzger, who had been his accomplice all along. Schreiber, who hated Jim, and all the virile Americanism that he stood for. Peterson and the two reporters I didn't know, but they were no doubt of the same vile breed. A fine gang of cutthroats who would have liked nothing better than to get rid of Jim. They probably saw his big searchlight that makes his car easily recognizable, and realized their opportunity had come. They had driven toward him as though to smash into him, and made Jim take the ditch to get out of the way. 
That explained the sudden jamming on of his brakes that had caused him to skid and overturn. All these thoughts passed through my mind as I heard the names of the men in the black limousine. Inspector, I said, I'm fully convinced that the men in that black limousine are responsible for my brother-in-law's accident. What makes you think that? he demanded, eyeing me narrowly. Because all of them had a reason to hate and fear my brother-in-law. Zalnick, since his release, had sworn he would get even with Mr. Felderson for putting him in prison. Metzger felt the same way. As for Schreiber, I'm sure if he could have manipulated that car so as to cause an accident to Mr. Felderson, he would have done it. "'You're crazy,' Robinson sneered. "'This thing's gone to your head. How could they have known it was your brother-in-law's car?' "'By the big searchlight on the front. It's the only car in the state with such a searchlight. Mr. Felderson's car was so fast that the police sometimes used it, and he had their permission to wear that light, as you probably know.' Also, it may have been dark enough to use the searchlight, and yet light enough so that the car could be distinguished at a hundred feet. If there was any light at all, that big Peckwith-Pierce car could be recognized by anyone. He was impressed. I could see it by the thoughtful, shrewd look that came into his eyes. Already he was making arrests by the wholesale, in his mind but I can't go pulling these men for murder on such slight evidence as that, he exploded. No one wants you to, I said sharply. All I want you to do is help me find out whether those men were present when the accident happened. The idea of helping me didn't please him at all. As soon as I had spoken, I saw my error in not putting it the other way round. Now, Mr. Thompson, you better keep out of this, he advised, getting to his feet. I know that you are anxious to find out if these men had anything to do with Mr. Felderson's death, but the case is in good hands. We're professionals. We can do a lot better when there's no amateurs messing about. You leave it to me. Just as you say, I acquiesced. Get busy, though, and if you find out anything, let me know. Robinson stood a minute, turning his derby hat in his hands. I knew what he was after. By the way, I added, I'll pay all expenses. His face brightened at once. Well, now, that's good of you, Mr. Thompson. I wasn't going to suggest anything like that, but it'll help a lot. I handed over several bills which he pocketed with satisfaction. Don't worry a minute, Mr. Thompson. We'll get those birds yet. I was pretty sure that they had something to do with it all the time. You've got the best man in the department on the job. He put on his derby hat with a flourish and trotted out the door. I recalled that I had told Mary I would see her, so I dismissed the stenographers and locked up the office. It was a perfect morning, with all the warm, spicy perfumes of Indian summer. Overhead a blue sky was filling with tumbled clouds of snowy whiteness. The rain of the night before was still on the grass and the trees, giving a dewy fragrance to the air that was invigorating. Now that I had found a possible solution to the tragedy, I was filled with enthusiasm. I felt that if I could bring Jim's murderers to trial, I would conduct such a case for the prosecution as would send them up for life. 
They had succeeded in carrying out their threats, but I would make them pay for it. I stopped in front of Mary's house and honked the horn. She opened the door and came quickly to the car. The tragic news of the night before had taken the laughter out of her eyes and the buoyancy from her step. "'I could cry my eyes out, Bups,' she said as she climbed into the car. "'Don't do it, or I'll start too,' I responded, a lump coming in my throat. "'How did it happen?' she asked, as we drove away. "'The papers gave a long account, but said it was an accident.' "'Zalnik did it, Mary. "'At least I'm almost sure it was he.' "'I told her what I had learned during the morning.' and as I talked I finally touched on Frank Wood's strange words of the night before. You don't think he had anything to do with it, do you, Bups? No, I said. I did think so, but I have changed my mind since this morning. I suppose it was just his grief that made him act so queerly. He does love Helen, Bups, Mary murmured. Helen got quite confidential while she was staying with me, and the things she told me about Woods made me see that he really was in love with her. "'Yes, I suppose he does love her,' I responded. "'But he had no right to take her away from Jim. "'It's the man who takes a woman, whether he has the right or not, that wins,' responded Mary seriously. I looked at her, wondering whether she was growing the least bit personal. She was looking straight ahead with an unsmiling gaze.' As I glanced at her, there beside me, with the breeze blowing wisps of golden hair around her temples, I got panic-stricken. "'Mary,' I began, "'watch where you are going, Bups.' I fastened my eyes on the street ahead, but only for an instant. With Jim gone I was going to be fearfully lonesome. I glanced at her again. "'Mary, I know this isn't the right time or place, but let's go to the hospital and find out about Helen.' she interposed quickly. She knew we were going there all the time. The mention of Helen brought me back to earth with a snap, and made me realize I had no business talking about love at such a time. Yet never in my life did I feel more like telling Mary how much I wanted her. We had no sooner entered the cool hall of St. Mary's than the little intern with glasses, whom I had seen the night before, came hurrying up to me. "'Mr. Thompson, we have been telephoning every place for you.' My heart jumped to my throat. "'Is Mrs. Felderson?' "'No,' he responded. "'Mrs. Felderson is still unconscious. "'It's Mr. Felderson. "'The coroner has made an important discovery.' I waved for Mary to stay where she was and hurried downstairs where Jim's body lay. It had not been moved before the coroner's inquest.' The room was dark, and several people were gathered around the inquest table. All eyes were turned on me as I entered the room. A portly man detached himself from the group and came toward me. "'Mr. Thompson?' "'Yes.' "'I am the coroner. In making my inquest, I find that death is not due to the automobile smash-up.' Mr. Felderson was shot through the head. "'From behind.' "'We have rendered a verdict.' of murder. End of chapter 6
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.